Hey everybody. Today, my guest is Dr. Stephanie Green, and we're going to talk about assisted dying. All right, Dr. Green, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, thanks for the invitation, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here with you. My name is Dr. Stephanie Green, and I'm trained as a family physician. I live in Victoria, BC, uh, up in Canada. And since 2016, I've been working as a maid practitioner or someone who provides assisted dying. Thank you for that. So you wrote a book on assisted dying, and I was hoping that you could tell me about the book. Oh, I'd love to tell you about the book. Um, I guess what I didn't say in my introduction is that I spent 22 years working in maternity and infant care, um, and I pivoted in 2016 when our law changed in Canada. The book that I wrote um, is about assisted dying. It's about how it works. It's about what it is. It's about how it feels to do this work, uh, especially based in that first year when I began providing the care, when it was all new, when we knew very little about it, when I knew very little about it. Um, and I think the book is really meant to pull a curtain back so that people, so but the readers can come into the room with me to see what I see and hear what people are saying to me and understand what it feels like to do this, what I think is very privileged work. Okay. No, that sounds extremely interesting. So I just want to get a better understanding of what um, medical assistance in dying means in the Canadian context. So in, in the literature, the, there is a distinction that's often made between physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. And I'm wondering how those relate to MAID. Yeah, great. I I think terminology is super important uh, in all fields, but especially in this field. And as you can imagine, different people use different terms, perhaps with different reasons. So let me define first what I think, what I'm referring to when I talk about assisted dying. Uh, I'm talking about the legalized, what I think is compassionate end of life care that's provided by clinicians who either prescribe and or administer lethal medications that will safely and effectively end a person's life in specifically safeguarded circumstances, which will include the explicit request of a competent adult. For me, that's what assisted dying is. In the Canadian context, we use the term medical assistance in dying as an umbrella term. It's a catch-all. We don't just say assisted dying. We talk about medical assistance in dying. It, uh, we use that term as it has a nod to the fact that there's a healthcare provider involved in the care. Um, and it is an umbrella term that encompasses both self-administered assisted dying when the clinician um, provides the prescription uh, and then provides the medication to the patient, but the patient actually self-administers it. That's what we call a self-administered assisted death. And uh, MAID also includes what we call clinician-administered assisted dying, or when the clinician writes the prescription, provides the medication, and actually administers the medication to the patient. So both are encompassed in the term medical assistance in dying. Okay, now thank you, thank you for that clarification. So why don't you like outline the steps of um, how one would actually qualify and receive medical aid in dying or medical assistance in dying. Yeah, so in Canada, in order to have a medical medically assisted death, uh, the patient needs to ask for it, and only the patient can ask for it. No matter what is written in any lawyer's office or in any other sort of agreement, the patient must be the one to initiate and uh, make the, the competent request. So no one can trigger it on their behalf in any circumstance. Um, if they want an assisted death, they need to fill out um, a written form. It's slightly different in every province or territory, but it's essentially the same requirement for a written request. That request needs to be uh, dated and signed and witnessed. There's a number of safeguarded uh, procedural safeguards really around that request, but it has to be a written request. And once the request is written, then the next step in the process is that two independent clinicians need to assess the patient for eligibility. And in Canada, those clinicians can be either medical practitioners or nurse practitioners. Um, and they need to be independent from each other. That's what we mean by independent. So they need to independently uh, do the assessment and be independent from each other. And once that's accomplished, if two clinicians independently agree that that's the case, then the patient has the ability to move forward to access assisted dying, but in order to do so, that's, there's then a number of other procedural safeguards that need to be satisfied. So there's eligibility criteria that need to be met and procedural safeguards that also need to be satisfied. Okay. So does a person have to be terminally ill in order to qualify? So the answer is no. There are 
essentially six things that need to be true, six eligibility criteria. And I'll just briefly tell you what they are. In Canada, to have an assisted death, a person must be over the age of 18. They must be eligible for Canadian government-funded health care. Um, so you can't come from another country and, and receive this care. You need to make what's considered a voluntary request, so no sense of coercion into this decision. You need to have what's called a grievous and irremediable condition, which has a number of other elements within it, which include that the patient has what we call a serious and incurable illness, disease, or disability, that they are now in an advanced, irreversible state of decline in capability or function, and that they're suffering intolerably in a way that cannot be relieved by any way acceptable to them. And the patient must also be capable of making this request, that they understand what they're asking for and appreciate its consequences, and that they then give a free and informed consent to receive assisted dying. So all of those things need to be true in order to be eligible. None of those requirements involve having a terminal illness. Uh, don't forget that in Canada, assisted dying came about not because voters asked for it or because the government thought it was a good idea, but it was a constitutional challenge based on rights. And in the Carter decision from the Supreme Court of Canada in 2015, they laid out what the essential elements would be. And there was no particular relationship with end of life uh, required by that high court decision. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. I haven't looked into the legal decision making, but I, uh, it, it makes sense to me, at least from, from my own perspective, that the, based on the criteria that you outlined, like I would almost break it down to like two fundamental components. One would be autonomy and the other is well-being, right? So there are certain aspects like, well, you want the, the patient has to have decision-making capacity, right? They, they, they can't, and the, included in that is that they are not being coerced by anybody or something like that, right? So it's a free and voluntary choice. They understand the pros and cons. They can weigh the, the pros and cons of different options. Um, and then the well-being aspect is whether or not this is actually fits with, like whether or not it could actually be good for them. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, right? I, mean, so I think I would probably use the flip side. I would say um, the first thing you talked about, about capacity and non-coercion and understanding and reasoning, that's all true. The other would be not so much about well-being, but about suffering, the presence of suffering um, from their perspective, from a medical perspective, from a legal perspective. I, I would say it's really about about suffering more so than well-being. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm just a, it, it's a habit of me because I do philosophy of well-being stuff. And uh, generally, like, suffering would just be something like negative well-being. I see. So, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that makes sense. Is it possible that somebody with a psychiatric illness could qualify, that somebody has an a incurable psychiatric illness? So it's, it, that's one of the million-dollar questions right now in Canada. So, so just to put in context, that original high court decision in 2015 um, specifically did not say certain patient populations weren't allowed to access assisted dying. It didn't say if you had a mental health disorder, you couldn't apply for MAID. It didn't say if you had dementia, you couldn't apply for MAID. It simply said the conditions that needed to be true in order for the Criminal Code of Canada to have a, um, a carved out you know, exclusion uh, to, to criminal activity. So in, in effect, anyone could come forward and ask to be assessed for assisted dying, including those with mental health disorders or psychiatric illnesses, as, as you call them. The other eligibility criteria, however, often restrict that patient population from accessing MAID. Originally, our government um, made legislation which did include a requirement not that a person had a terminal illness, but that their death was what they called reasonably foreseeable. Um, that's a whole weekend's debate about what that does and doesn't mean. But it did imply that the patient needed to be on a trajectory towards their death due to their serious illness. And most patients who only had a mental health disorder couldn't qualify under that requirement. So for, for many years, this simply wasn't possible. Not that they weren't allowed, but that they couldn't meet that eligibility criteria. And I would note that there were actually several cases which did meet that criteria, some of which went to the courts and were affirmed to be eligible. So it is possible. It's just very uncommon. That said, that requirement uh, for a person to have a death that was reasonably foreseeable was challenged in the courts and removed from our law as it was, it was felt, it was determined to be unconstitutional. And once that was removed, the access for those who exclusively had mental health disorders then, of course, seemed to open up. And the government felt concerned about that. And for the very first time, 
in 2021, they instituted an explicit exclusion for those who have solely mental health disorders. Okay, so that's what happened in March of 2021. But the Senate of our country, when this law was passing, felt that to do so was probably discriminatory and not defensible. And so they added the requirement that that exclusion automatically sunset out of our law in a few years. Uh, and that would give the government time to prepare for how to move forward with a potentially vulnerable population like those with mental health disorders. And so a number of work, a number of bits of work were done to prepare for that. And that exclusion is now due to expire automatically in March of 2024. So just to be clear, this is not an expansion to allow those with mental health disorders to access MAID. This is a restoration of the rights of those with mental health disorders to access the safe and legal health care that is available to all other Canadians. That said, it's a complex issue um, and we're not there yet. So the answer is if a patient only has a mental health disorder as their reason for applying for assisted dying in Canada, they are not currently able to access made, although I expect they will be after March 2024. What has been happening since 2016, since we had this care available, so for over seven years now, is that patients who have mental health disorders but also have concurrent physical illnesses have been able to apply for made, and in many cases have been able to be found eligible due to their physical illness. So a patient with bipolar disease who has pancreatic cancer can apply for made. They still need to meet all the eligibility criteria. They still need to have capacity to make this decision. So if their mental health disorder is interfering with that capacity, they will not qualify for Maine. But if they're stable, and we have opinions and consultations suggesting that that's the case, and that they do actually have capacity to make healthcare decisions such as requesting assisted dying, they may well be qualified. So we have lots of experience working with patients with mental health disorders and evaluating those aspects of their care and their capacity but not if it's the only reason they're applying for MAID. I see. Yeah, it's definitely a tricky issue. Um, I don't know too much about what the debates are, and especially the debates that are happening in Canada, but as far as I can tell, it's really about a question of their autonomy, like whether or not a person who suffers from a psychiatric illness can, can make an autonomous choice like that. I don't think it's necessarily about the question um, about reducing suffering. I don't know. So the, the question seems to have become... A little bit less about that. I mean, I think there are people who question immediately if someone with a mental health disorder can make such a decision. I think those from the mental health community are somewhat insulted by that question. Um, in healthcare, there is a presumption of capacity for all people unless there's reason to think otherwise. And if someone has an active mental health disorder, there is reason to suspect otherwise. And so, of course, you need to do a more in-depth and advanced capacity assessment. But the presumption is there. And then the assessment can be done and consultations can be had. I think the real complicated question we're coming up against is whether a patient with a mental health disorder can ever be said to have uh, an irremediable or incurable illness. And I think that there's a really large division within uh, the psychiatric community about whether that's true or not. We don't know enough about psychiatric illness, mental health disorders, to always know if that's true. And one of the requirements of our law is that it is incurable. So if you can't make an opinion that this illness is incurable, you can't find them eligible for MAID. But I would suggest that the, the very presence of the field of palliative psychiatry would suggest that there are rare cases, there are some cases, where patients have been through decades of treatments and trials and interactions with the medical system and have simply not been adequately treated in a way that they feel their life still has some meaning to them and that they're suffering intolerably. And, and I can imagine a case where someone might be able to apply and qualify for MAID. I think they will be few and far between, but I think they exist. And I think the experience in other countries that allow this uh, show us that, that that's exactly the case. Very few, but some. No, those are definitely good points. Like, I don't know, just like according to the literature, that just because somebody has a mental illness does not mean that they lack decision-making capacity, like it's decision-specific. So I think it's, a, it's, a, it's important to make that clear. And I think the other point is, it's a good point as well, is that there, there is an element of the unknown, right? For certain, maybe like for, you know, for this particular type of cancer, like we know that we cannot cure, like it is just incurable, you know? 
But when it comes to something like psychiatric stuff, it's like, I don't know, like, you know, maybe if you did some psychedelics or something, you might be able to reverse. I mean, who knows? You know what I mean? There's that element. Yeah, the, you know. There's lots of treatment options out there and lots of different versions of treatment combinations that could be tried. And I think that, that it's important that patients who are coming down this path, you know, those safeguards I referred to earlier, patients whose death is not reasonably foreseeable, those safeguards include making sure our patients are aware of the other options for treatment, that they've been offered those treatments, that they've been, you know, given those referrals and that they've given serious consideration to trying them. So all of that has to happen. We, you know, the assisted dying should really be a decision of last resort. Um, anyone who's not been through really robust um, interactions and trials of other options really will have trouble qualifying. Yes. No, I, I completely agree. It should be a last resort. Now, do you think that this is just um, a lack of research problem? Because you, you, you would think that if we collected enough data, we would know whether or not a particular psychiatric condition was curable, right? So is it just that we just don't have, we don't have enough data? Uh, in some way, I think we don't have enough understanding of many of these illnesses, what causes them, what, uh, you know, what factors influence in them, how our medications and treatment options even work. We, we don't know for a lot of these. I, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm probably not best, you know, able to answer that question. But it seems to me that we, we have a lack of information um, on, on many of those situations. So, so that is a big problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. So why don't you um, walk through like the steps of what MAID looks like in practice? You know, let's say after they've qualified. Yeah. So after someone's qualified, well, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't add the step of telling someone that they qualify. I have to say when I sit in front of someone and let them know that they're eligible for this care, they've been through this rigorous assessment and I tell them there's almost always a therapeutic benefit just in that conversation by letting someone know that they're eligible because it returns that sense of control to patients. Often patients who've been struggling for, for months or even years in a situation where they felt quite helpless. And so to return that empowered choice making to a patient is incredibly therapeutic and in and of itself, I think, reduces suffering. And people will often choose to live a little bit longer because that suffering has been reduced. So I think that's an important step to recognize. Um, but on the day of, if that's what you're asking, um, what this would typically look like in Canada, over 99% of all assisted dying is clinician administered. This is common in any jurisdiction where clinician administered assisted dying is allowed and legal. Uh, it's over 95% in the Netherlands and in Belgium, and it's over 99% in Canada. So uh, what this typically will look like is that I will go to the pharmacy and pick up the medications. I will go to the location, which is usually the patient's home. Um, uh, I will, you know, introduce myself and meet everybody. I'll take time to have a private conversation with the patient to ensure they haven't changed their mind or that they're not having second thoughts or that I can't, you know, maybe answer more questions and to, again, get final consent. There's always the option to change their mind. Um, my nurse will start an IV in their arm if they've given consent to go ahead. I will prepare the family and their guests for what to expect, answer all their questions. We work very, very transparently. So, so everything's out in the open. Uh, we can accommodate at that point anything the patient wants to happen. There may be prayer, there may be readings, there may be song, there may be a toast. It could be a party going on or it could be a very, very intimate event with just very few people. Whatever they've designed or choreographed for this event, we can accommodate. And when that seems complete, we often have an exchange of last words uh, of some sort. I always give the last word to the patient. Uh, and then I ask again if they're ready to begin, and they, again, need to give consent immediately prior to the administration of medication. Uh, and then I will give uh, four medications. The first one is an anti-anxiety medication that will put them in a light, comfortable sleep. They usually fall asleep within a minute and are unaware of anything else. We use a local anesthetic in the arm. We use a, a comatose, a uh, coma-inducing agent as our third medication. And a fourth medication is, uh, is uh, a paralytic. So we go through a, a, a well-known, uh, well-researched protocol that we board from the Dutch. And I know that if I'm in the, the vein, uh, I'm 100% effective. Uh, that process itself of medication uh, is usually about anywhere from five to eight minutes on average. Uh, I might pronounce the death and then probably excuse myself quite quickly from the room to give the family uh, some time together at that time to begin their, their grieving. 
Uh, there's always a debrief afterwards to make sure everyone's okay, to answer more questions, to kind of help people take those next few steps, which can be quite awkward and uncomfortable for people. Uh, so we stay to make sure that everything is in order. And I'll take care of all the administrative work that needs to happen as, as I leave. So that's kind of the essence right there of the, the nuts and bolts of what happens. What happens actually every time is, of course, quite unique in every situation. Every family, every person, every situation is quite unique and always colored by the characters and individuals uh, that are involved. No, thank you for that. I'm surprised to hear that over 99% of these cases um, are physician-administered. Um, do you have an explanation as to why that's the case? Yeah, I think we've had the benefit of learning from our colleagues in other countries of what's happened and what's worked for them and what's not worked so well for them. Uh, there's really two things that are involved. One is that, um, well, as you may know, in the United States, of course, a patient does need to be terminal and they do need to self-administer. There's no clinician administered assisted dying anywhere in the United States. And previously, uh, many states had relied on a particular medication the medications that are used most commonly in Europe over the past 20 years are not freely available in the United States due to political reasons, and some of those medications would not be exported from Europe to the United States due to capital punishment issues in the United States. There was just a refusal to do that, or that's my understanding. So uh, other medications had to be used, used to be Secanol, then it wasn't available at a reasonable price. So a number of kind of recipes and cocktails were created in the U.S., which were successful. But they had some downsides. And uh, in Canada, when this became legal, legal, we looked at the experience in the States and we looked at the experience in Europe. We did have um, access to some of those medications, but not the best ones right away. So really, we started off with clinician-administered uh, assisted dying because it was uh, more available to us and patients were happy with it. Uh, but within a year, we had access to a single agent that would be excellent, and we continued to have access to it. But by that time, many, many clinicians were already familiar with the other um, uh, other version, and patients were quite happy with it. When we started to talk to patients about the options and tried to present them objectively, uh, a very small failure rate and a delayed uh, time to dying with oral agents was just not preferred by our patients. They simply preferred a system where the clinician was in charge and he knew it was 100%. So we continue to offer both, but we continue to see the vast majority choosing clinician administered death. That sounds reasonable. Like if there is some chance of it failing, you know, I would also prefer the other option. All else That's what we see. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And yeah. other countries have also learned. I mean, you'll see what happened in Australia and New Zealand. They also are very much based on the U.S. model, requiring terminal illness, requiring self-administration, but realizing that there are some problems with that. They have a built into their laws that if the patient themselves cannot self-administer, that the clinician can. And so, like I said, um, I think the newer jurisdictions have really had the benefit of learning what's worked and what's not and, and trying to improve upon that for the, from the patient's perspective. Yeah, I've heard the argument that if you only allowed self-administered uh, assisted death, then you discriminate against those who suffer from some sort of maybe paralysis or some physical disability. Yeah, a whole host of patients, of course, um, well, due to their illness, may not be able to hold a glass or use their, you know, their gastrointestinal system or have a gut that will digest, for example. And and anyone who's, of course, physically disabled and couldn't do that. And those who are required to be at end of life as, you know, they might have had the ability six months ago, but now that they're nearing the very end of their life, they've lost that ability to swallow and digest. And so it is seemingly discriminatory in, in my view. No, that makes sense. So in your experience, how many people actually change their mind? Not many. Um, I, you'd have to look at the national data to get a better sense. Um, I think what you, what we're seeing generally is of all the people who apply for assisted dying who actually fill out the written request, about a third of them will not proceed to receive assisted dying. But that, the reasoning, it, it can be a number of different reasons. Some of them have died while they're waiting. Some of them have gone on to lose capacity to give that final consent. And some of them have changed their mind. So there's a number of uh, issues that make up that that roughly 30%. So it's a little bit hard to tease out. The data we're collecting is going to be more robust going forward since January of 2023. So I think we'll have a better breakdown uh, within a year or two. Mm -hmm. 
One concern that I've heard about legalizing as assisted dying is that perhaps there may be less emphasis on palliative care, that there will be less funding dedicated to palliative care because the option of assisted death is there and perhaps it's cheaper. I don't know if you ever, maybe that doesn't apply in the Canadian context as your healthcare system is very different from ours, but have you ever heard of that argument before? Well, I've heard the argument raised. I think the data actually shows quite the opposite. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an important question to ask, even in a universal healthcare system. But actually, we see quite the opposite. You know, for me to do my job properly, I need to make sure my patients are aware of other treatment options. And primarily, that, that includes palliative care. In fact, built into our federal legislation, I must make my patients aware of the option of palliative care. It's difficult to do that if it's not available. Um, what we have found is that since uh, assisted dying has become legal in Canada, we see many more patients accessing palliative care. We see increased funding for palliative care. We've seen just recently, the most recent data in the past five years, um, an increase in the uh, utilization of palliative care in, in all people across Canada. Uh, and the number of home deaths supported by palliative care has also risen the most in the last five years than in any other time in Canadian history. This is the type of data we see in the Benelux countries as well. So as assisted dying has become legal, we see more interest in palliative care, more funding to palliative care, more people accessing palliative care, more people dying at home with the support of palliative care. Um, and the Canadian data supports that change. So I, I would argue with the other assertion. Okay. Thank you for that. Do you think that the way that the law is right now in Canada is where it, it should be, or do you think it should, the, the qualifications or the eligibility criteria should be slightly changed? That's an interesting question. It, it's a political question. I, um, Despite what people will obviously assume about me, I'm not an advocate for this care or for change in law. I, I advocate for doing a a very good job at what we do within whatever law of the land exists. Um, so I'm not really sure I'm going to comment on what I think the law could or should be or how it should change. I would say Canada took a pretty bold and measured step by, um, by legislating assisted dying based on other jurisdictions' experiences and have put together a very rigorous process that's embedded within a very robust framework of oversight I think Canada's done an excellent job. I think the tweaking in 2021, uh, the amending of our law was based on learning and experience of the first uh, five years, and I think that was important. And I think they've landed in a, a pretty solid place. The government itself uh, has a committee that has recommended some ongoing changes, which may or may not ever come to Canada. Um, but as a whole, overall, right now, I think we're in a, a very... Uh, safe, rigorous, and robust program, uh, which, which if it stayed this way, I think would be acceptable to a great many. Okay. Do you, I don't know what the conscientious objection laws are in Canada, but if there were a physician who was not willing to participate because they just thought that it was wrong, would they be able to do that? Yeah, it's actually built into our federal law to recognize and respect conscientious objection. There is no way any clinician in our country could ever be forced to do this work. Uh, it's at federal level. It's uh, simply um, allowed to to conscientiously be, conscientiously object to this work. What we do find, though, is that the professional organizations, like those regulating bodies that license clinicians, uh, do impose certain professional obligations on its members. So if I were to conscientiously object to doing this work, I'd certainly have the right to do so, but I'm not allowed from a professional regulatory point of view to uh, simply abandon my patient. There is something called an effective transfer of care that is required. Um, and that might be asking the secretary to give some information to the patient uh, and so that they could find someone who's reasonably available elsewhere to answer their questions or uh, help them through the process. But so, that, you know, the details of that might be a little bit different in every province, but professional obligations do still exist around conscientious objection. But as a, as a rule, it absolutely is, is acknowledged and respected. So when you said the law was passed in 2016, 
the court case in 2015, the initial legislation in 2016. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Were you comfortable with participating for, from the beginning? You know, it wasn't so obvious to me. I had spent this year, de these decades in maternity care. I was making a pretty big shift that wasn't initially obvious to me that I would be shifting towards. You know, I had been watching this court case. I'd been following the issue of assisted dying in Canada for several decades. We've been discussing and debating assisted dying since the early 90s when Sue Rodriguez's case really caught the attention of most Canadians. And as a physician with a couple decades of experience, I'd been continuing to follow this debate and then saw this court case coming. The more I learned about assisted dying and how it was expected to be handled, the more interested in it I became and the more I educated myself with those from other jurisdictions and learned from their researchers and their clinicians what they did, I thought I would be interested in doing the work. So I would say I came to it, I think, relatively late. Um, it was in 2015, 2016 that I started considering it. Um, and is anyone ever ready to do something they've never seen or, or done before? I mean, there is a bit of a big blind step to some extent. In medicine, we see one, do one, teach one. There was no way to see one or do one. Uh, so I had to learn from others who had done it elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, I didn't really know it first. But as I began the work, I became more and more drawn into it, especially because it the primacy of the work seems to be about patient autonomy and patient-centered care, which I've always believed to be incredibly important in medicine and healthcare. So I think I quickly became quite involved with the work. Do you happen to know the data, like in terms of percentages, how many physicians uh, participate in MAID and how many don't? That's actually data we don't have very clearly. We do know how many individual clinicians have been involved in a MAID provision in any given year in Canada. Uh, and I think the last, the most recent data is from 2021 is about 1,300 and 70 or 1,350 individual clinicians have been involved in some way. This is in a country that has, you know, over 85, 90,000 clinicians. So not a very high number. The other thing that's um, misleading about that number is that the vast majority, uh, well, the vast majority, a significant number of those 1,350 have only been involved in one or two or certainly less than five cases. The percentage of clinicians that are involved in over 10 cases is quite small and probably ranges in the 250 to 300 clinician uh, range. So rather than having a lot of clinicians doing a very small amount of assisted dying to care for their own patient populations, which is what we see in places like the Netherlands and Belgium, in Canada we have a small number of clinicians doing a lot of assisted dying uh, as this is still rolling out and becoming available across the country. So percentage I don't have, but I can tell you it's not a large number. Raven, okay. I know that some people were worried of um, the eligibility criteria loosening. I think that's like like when I look at the debate, it, you know, people often refer to it as a slippery slope, right? So right now you have to be an adult, but you know, but you could you know make the arguments like, well, children can suffer too, right? They could, they could be terminally ill and they have this incurable. Uh, and it's intractable suffering, you know, why not expand it and stuff like that? And, you know, it's, I, I, I can see the concern, you know, and it, and it's hard for me to actually figure out like what I personally believe on the issue. Cause I, I do see, uh, the benefit of providing something like Maine. Like I, I, I do see that, uh, death can actually be good for someone and, and, and philosophers of well-being are, are absolutely willing to admit that no matter like what theory, pretty much no matter what theory that you adhere to. It's going, to be, it's going to be possible for some people, you know. In some but, circumstances. Yes, in some circumstances. But I, I, I do worry about it going a little too far. So I guess it's, it's not necessarily a criticism of the practice itself. It just highlights the importance of figuring out exactly where we want to draw the line. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a fair comment. I think it's important to, one of, the, one of the talks I went to when I was learning about this in Amsterdam, tried to address that directly. Um, you know, I would note that the Canadian legislation has has barely changed uh, in seven years. It's it's not shown that expansion at all, in my opinion. But when you talk about slippery slopes, you have to, well, what does that mean? Does that mean people who are more vulnerable are somehow m more likely to access this care? That, you know, that's 
to me, I think that's what that's implying. So the young, the especially elderly, those with mental health disorders. I mean, are we seeing data that shows that these vulnerable, potentially vulnerable populations are somehow, um, you know, accessing assisted dying more often? Their numbers are going up. There's some sort of change happening, some sort of slope happening. And the data just simply doesn't support that. We, we don't see an increase of the elderly accessing MAID. We don't see an increase in those with mental health disorders accessing MAID. We don't see an increase in people who are younger than 18 accessing MAID. These things aren't happening. So I think it's always good to be cautious. I think it's essential to be cautious and to create a rigorous system with very clear eligibility and safeguards. But once they're in place... Uh, if they are maintained, uh, and you look at the national data year after year after year, you should be able to see trends and changes and risks. Uh, and we're not seeing that. So good to ask the question, but I don't think you could ever make an argument that a slippery slope exists or is happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think it's pr it probably just comes from fear. Like it's more fear-based than it is an observation of, of current trends. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. What do you find to be the most challenging part of being a physician that provides MAID? I'd say, I'd say probably one of the, I'd say probably the most challenging part is having patients come to me who feel that they are suffering intolerably, who are requesting for me to end their life. Um, and, and some of them simply don't qualify under our, our law. And that's, and that's okay. That's why those, the law is there. But for me to have to explain to someone, to, you know, to validate that I hear them, that I hear that they're suffering, I don't, I don't doubt that suffering and pain are very personal experiences, but to, be, to, but to have to tell them that I'm unable to help them, despite the fact that I agree that they, you know, I hear them, that they're suffering, is, uh, is a difficult conversation very challenging to do compassionately and inevitably lead, leaves the patient, um, you know, upset, uh, disappointed, um, sometimes quite reactive. Uh, so I find that to be extremely difficult uh, in this work. Yeah, no, I can totally understand that. What's the most common reason somebody doesn't qualify? Um, well, it used to be that, they, that their death wasn't reasonably foreseeable. So that's where I would see maybe patients with longstanding treatment-resistant depression or something who would come and ask for care. And I, and I, you know, I would have to explain to them how the law works and they couldn't qualify in that matter. I'd say more often today, people don't qualify because of capacity issues. They simply can't maintain a consistent and endurable request with reasoning and understanding. Uh, they've come to me too late. Or they've come to me with an illness that that clouds that cognition. So capacity is, is a big issue. Um, and some people come to me hoping to simply be able to end their life because they feel their life is complete. I might see someone in their 90s who feels they've contributed and have lived a good life and are now facing decline and they would like to end their life, have kind of a completed life. And our law doesn't allow for that. So um, they're not yet in an advanced state of decline or suffering intolerably on, in, in other ways. So having to explain that there are limitations that they have to work within um, can be can be a challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you're willing, I you know I'd be interested in hearing a story. Sure. Well, I would of course refer you to my book that is filled with interesting stories. Um, you know, I think one of the stories I, I would share is the story of Ray. Ray was, uh, not his real name, uh, was a relatively young man in his 60s with metastatic lung cancer. So uh, classically, about 65 to 70% of all of our my patients have cancer. Um, and he was a man who was single with no children, but had a group of friends. And he uh, presented with um, the complication of, uh, he had these tumors that would start appearing on his body and he would have them irradiated which was quite painful for him. But as soon as he would irradiate one, like another two would pop up. It was, it was a little bit like whack-a-mole. He, he was uh, suffering quite a bit from these nodules that would appear. And he had been through surgery and chemo and radiation and was getting to the point where he, he couldn't control the symptoms anymore. There was really not a lot more that could be offered to him. And he was, he was one of the 
less likely cases where he was suffering from total pain. He, he was admitted to hospital in what he called a total pain crisis, which which is not a common situation for our patients because our palliative care colleagues do such a good job. But they could not control his pain. And uh, he'd been asking for assisted dying for uh, over a month. Um, and he was uh, admitted to hospital for a pain pump and a number of very specialized services, which were ultimately unsuccessful. Um, and he eventually did... Uh, I came to see him. I found him eligible. Uh, another clinician also found him eligible. And he, he finally stopped worrying about how he was going to die and how painful that was going to be. And he sort of shifted to how he was going to live the next few days or weeks of his life before his death. And that's what I meant earlier. When people are told that they have this possibility where they're empowered with this, you can see a, an immediate change where they shift from how am I going to die to how am I going to live? So, so Ray did that, and he had an assisted death that was arranged to be on the rooftop of the hospital he was in, um, with his friends around him. There was just three friends and him and myself and my nurse. And uh, the reason I thought of Ray when you asked me is because when we were all gathered there and all the goodbyes were said, and I was asking him for that final consent before I began giving the medications. Um, he reached over and he grabbed both of my hands in his and he looked at me. And he said, I know this sounds nuts, Dr. Green, but I think you saved my life. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. And it always stuck with me because it really was was unexpected and, of course, seems paradoxical in that situation for someone to tell me that I'm saving their life as I'm about to give them medication that's going to end their life. But I think it was very powerful and it kind of goes to show that for for people who really feel the need for this care, um, it's extremely important for them. And uh, it's a very privileged position for me to be in, to be able to offer this to them. So I think that's one experience I would, I would share. I find that this discussion about assisted dying is tainted by that word suicide. And I can understand why people don't want to use that word and don't want to label that service as that. And... But, 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 you know, just from like a philosophical perspective, I mean, it's hard to even say what counts as suicide and what doesn't, right? Because even here, and I'm probably in Canada, the patients have the right to refuse the life-saving care, right? So if you do have a person who's terminal and he's like, no, or not terminal, but a person who has cancer and they don't want chemo or any treatment, you know, I'm like, that kind of, that kind of sounds like suicide to me. Like, I mean, maybe we don't want to call it that, but they're off, they're making a choice that is going to, like, and it, their death is guaranteed because of that choice. Yeah, I mean, we can distinguish between the refusal of life-sustaining treatment. We could talk about the ability to remove life-sustaining treatment like dialysis. These are all things that have been debated and discussed and decided in the courts and kind of come to become um, commonly accepted in medical practice, healthcare practice in North America and most, most Western uh, countries. Um, and, uh, and I agree, there's... Uh, there are distinctions between some of these, but they're not so far off from each other. I, I agree. And I think that if we can if we can agree that someone who's on dialysis and decides it's enough, they want they have the ability to stop that, or someone who doesn't want to be ventilated to maintain their life just for the sake of maintaining it, if these things are acceptable, how different is making a decision to end your life at a certain time under certain uh, safeguarded circumstances? I agree. I think the term suicide carries a lot of stigma. Uh, you, you know... It, used to be a crime in our country, right? It hasn't been since the 1970s, but it still has a connotation around it that something negative is there. And so the use of that word is often used by opponents on purpose to, to bring in those connotations, I think. What do you want people to know about medical aid and dying or, or, or made? Like, it, do you think that there were misunderstandings of the practice? Like, what, if, if you had to choose, what would you clarify to people? A loaded question. I, I think I would clarify that assisted dying is legal. In Canada, a fully covered medical service. It is health care, according to our law and, and according to medical practice. It is safe. I feel it's compassionate. I think what's most important is that people understand it's not simple to just call up and ask for it. There is a very rigorous process in place that must be adhered to. 
and that there is oversight and regulation of that process embedded within a, a tested and trusted framework. Everything from federal law, provincial standards, professional standards, facility guidelines, clinical profession guidelines. This is a, a very large, robust system around that rigorous process. And I think that in seven years of doing this work in our country, uh, we've never seen a clinician charged with abuse of the system or misuse of the care, which I think speaks volumes to the quality of care that's being provided and the cautious nature of clinicians in doing this work, that people are not out there on their own trying to prove a point or be activists, that clinicians who do this are cautious and careful and work within the system. I think those are the things I, I would want to highlight because I, I find them all to be true. And I think that people need to know those things. Mm -hmm. Those are definitely important things to know. I, uh, so I'm, uh, you know, I teach bioethics at the College of Pharmacy here at Ohio State. And, you know, while assisted death is not legal here, I mean, I think it might be. You know, I, I think more and more states are going to legalize it. And this is a question that I ask my pharmacy students, you know, like how many of you would be comfortable participating, you know? And, and some of them are willing and some of them are not, you know? But I, I think eventually it probably will be legalized. And I suspect that there would be enough practitioners who are willing to participate and provide the service. I suspect so, true. And, I, and this sounds a little bit, uh, I don't know what this, what this comment is, but, you know, baby boomers are currently entering their later stages of life. And they have affected every single stage of their lives for the last, you know, what is that, 60, 70 years. They changed how kids play. They changed how adolescents rebel. They changed how marriage looks. They changed, you know, they were part of the sexual revolution. They changed how workers work in the workforce. They are most certainly going to change how people die, or they're going to try to. I think to recognize that is only to recognize the reality that, 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 that there will be shifts you know, the zeitgeist in certain countries may not be especially progressive today, but that doesn't mean that the the overall sentiments, I think, will be changing over time. And as you say, there are many states right now in the U.S. who are considering legislation similar or in some way related to assisted dying. And uh, I think it's a matter of when, not if. Um, just like a lot, a lot more people are, are, are secular now. And I feel a lot of the objections toward assisted dying come from a religious background. Yeah, I think that's that's traditionally been true and, and still is true. I think it's interesting to look at the national polls in both of our countries, actually. There are national polls and statewide polls that show consistently that the majority of the population actually is in favor of some form of assisted dying. But if when you break it down by demographics, you'll see that in all of those polls, people who self-identify as religious or self-identify specifically as Catholic um, and there's a number of other ones, I forget exactly which faith groups in the U.S., there's still the large majority of those uh, who self-identify as faith-based actually approve of and uh, support the idea of assisted dying, which I was quite surprised at, but I've seen consistently over the years. Yeah, I think I've seen uh, data that suggests that as well. That um, And it's, yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? It, it, I think a lot of people are just religious in name. You know, they're like culturally religious and they're, you know, they may go to you know, church every Sunday, but that's because that's just how they were raised, you know, but just in terms of their like social and political leanings, they might be quite liberal. Yes, I think that's true. And and also in my practice, I've, you know, I don't expect the church to ever come out as an institution to embrace assisted dying. I, I think that's unreasonable to ever, you know, suspect will happen. But on the individual level, I've certainly uh, attended many deaths with a variety of community faith-based leaders from Jewish, Muslim, Unitarian, Anglican, Catholic. I, I've had all of these ministers or priests or leaders attend assisted deaths with me. So while the institution itself may have a certain stance, there are many, many spiritual guides who will not turn their back on community members who are seeking their support in some way. And I think that's a very human answer, uh, which I'm, I'm glad to see. Yeah, no, th thank you for that. I I don't know if you um, see it this way, but those who are opposed to the practice, I I feel that it's really about them 
as a provider not wanting to provide the service. It's not necessarily about the patient, right? Like if you were to ask them, well, like, do you disagree that this patient really wants it? And they may say, well, no, I mean, this patient has, you know, has decision-making capacity, has expressed a consistent wish, right? It's like, there's no reason to doubt that they really want it. So the autonomy part is there. Okay. Well, do you doubt that this patient is going to continue to suffer if they live? It's like, well, no, right? So it's not really about that. There's no disagreement over that. It's this other element that factors into their, uh, their decision-making process. And that other element is how they personally feel about it, right? So it's about them and not the patient. Exactly. I couldn't agree more. And I, and I think it's fair to say that we all need to set our own boundaries for ourselves. And we have every right to do that. And we should respect our own boundaries. I have to set my own boundaries or I can't continue to do work. So I personally don't do this work on the weekends, for example. If somebody feels that they can't be involved, that's fine. But recognize it that it's their issue. If you're going to practice what we consider patient-centered care, if that's going to be the primal uh, factor, then let's at least accept that for the patient, it might be right, but for you, it might be wrong. So fair enough, step aside. If there is someone willing to help them, then then we'll allow that to happen in a safe and regulated way. Yeah. If, if someone were to force me to take a stance, I think it would be something like that. You know, it should be legalized. There should be safeguards in place, absolutely, to make sure that it's the last resort and conscientious objection needs to be protected. Well, thank you so much. I think it's a good place to wrap things up. Are there any like final thoughts that you want the audience to, to know about? Or are there any like current or future projects that you have? Yeah, well, if you're going to ask, I'm going to answer. I mean, one of the exciting things going on right now in Canada is an organization that I helped co-found, the Canadian Association of Made Assessors and Providers. It's a national charity and professional association that supports the people that do this work. We're actually just launching a national made training curriculum so we can help standardize the approach to made assessments and provisions across our very vast country. Uh, and it's really exciting to see that roll out and to offer the opportunity for more knowledge um, about this issue to any and every licensed clinician who wants to learn about it, who's considering getting involved. Uh, so really exciting project uh, unrolling right now. All right, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me.